1: Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie
4: Stabenow, and I'm listening to The Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. If you're interested in the environment and climate change, today's the day for you. We've got a good one in store. Coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with uh, Thomas Pishak, a uh, photographer for National Geographic who has... Uh, Uh, who lives in uh, Cape Town, South Africa and has um, significant interest in uh, what's happening with the oceans around the planet. And in the uh, middle, the second hour of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with Lisa Ramsden, a senior plastics campaigner for Greenpeace, about a new report from Greenpeace called the Climate Emergency Unpacked, talking about basically single-use plastics plastic bottles for soda and water and so forth. Um, but we're going to start out this morning with uh, a uh, climate policy insider. He is the chairman of the World Resources Institute. His name is James Harmon. He joins me by phone. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for inviting me. Um, Jim, how did you get in interested uh, in... Climate change and and the work that you do with um, well let's let's see the Egyptian uh, American Enterprise Fund the World Resources Institute just to name a couple um, you're considered a world renowned investor and uh, an advisor with significant global experience how did you get interested in climate change uh, Tom
3: when I was first invited to join the government. Uh, I i had been chairman of an investment banking firm, uh, Schroeder Wertheim, uh, which was an international firm, and I received a call from Al Gore informing me that I was about to be invited uh, in 1990, early 1997 uh, to join the Clinton administration and chair an agency called the Export Import Bank of the United States. Uh, it's a funny recollection of that call because on that call he says to me, "I need your email address." And I put him on hold and I asked my assistant, "Do we have an email?" At that time, <laughs> little I knew at that time, and and that to young people listening, they'll think, "How could that possibly be?" But in those days, well, Al Gore had just
4: he, he had just started he, the internet at that time. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> well, he 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 still tells us, score.
3: He still tells a story when he introduces me wherever we are, including in, in right now in, this, in a conference. He c- loves that story, and that was a true story. Then he says to me, well, I, we want to invite you to join the administration and the chair of the Export-Import Bank of the United States. I also had no idea what the Export-Import Bank of the United States was. And again, I, I said I have to get back to you. Then I looked it up. Fast forward, I did join the Clinton administration, and early on, in my chairmanship of the Export-Import Bank. By the way, that agency supports exports by uh, uh, exporters in the United States that would not go forward or not for a guarantee of payment by the United States government. So if uh, I had been on the board of a company, we made some orthopedic equipment, we got an order from Nigeria, and and the chairman said to me this was many years ago should we take it and, and he said i don't think they'll pay us why do, how do i know anybody in africa is going to pay us well this particular agency united states government guarantees to the exporters and they'll get paid so it's a very important agency for supporting exports by the united states and therefore creating jobs in the united states and it has the support of both political parties because it's a job creator in the united states when i joined the agency however uh, early on uh, i got a call from two senators well known senators who said they had complaint against the agency uh, that somehow rather we had we had rejected the opportunity to provide equipment to the chinese for a very important dam uh, called the three gorges dam uh, and um, if i didn't if I didn't find a way to support our exporters to su- to sell equipment like Caterpillar equipment to that so they could use it in China for building that dam that they would have to reduce uh, or cut back on the budget of the Exxon Bank. So it was sort of a veiled threat. Um, I met with various different environmentalists at that time. I knew very little about what the environmental NGOs did. And there were mostly at those days it was not uncommon for the environmentalists to scream and yell at people in the United States government. In one particular case, they even threatened to throw a pie at my face when I gave a speech because we were supposedly we were supporting exports that were not environmentally constructive and damaging to the world. And I was so little uh, experienced in this area. But there was one particular ngo called the world resources institute which did not have a shrill voice they were thoughtful and the then chairman of it sat down with me and gave me a very comfortable lecture about what he thought my responsibilities would be and why he thought i could help out so that was particularly helpful that took me to the wri as a group who i knew very little about but importantly in that first year in the united states government uh, it was a real eye opener about the role that the United States should play uh, in this area of the environment. And in the, the very first G7 meeting that I attended, uh, I was leading a group and uh, I made the proposal at the time that because the Congress of the United States had, had passed some provisions in, in the charter of the XM Bank. The government agency uh, that we would not be allowed to support exports that were damaging to the environment without giving you too much else detail I propose to the other g7 countries the UK and Germany and 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 Japan and so forth that they adopt the same kind of provisions so therefore they would not be supporting uh, uh, they would not be supporting projects that pollute the world and we were on we were we, we we had stopped doing that, so we needed them to agree to <clears throat> do the same thing. Uh, as the senator later said to me, if you don't get the G seven countries to do the same as the United States, we're going to lose a lot of business. Just they'll go and buy the same equipment from Caterpillar, for example, who makes it in Germany, also as well as the United States. Unless we in the United States can compete with them, and that was an eye opener for me and that led me to the whole area of what could the United States do in the, in this regard. But needless to say, that very first G7 meeting, they took a vote and I, I was voted down seven, six to one and I lost six to one. I couldn't convince one of the other G7 countries to agree to have environmental standards. That was 1997. Then I decided to do something that I had learned long ago I've always been a believer in relationship building. I don't think you can live your life just off the screen of a computer. I think you need to build relationships with people. So I got on the plane and I started to visit directly each of the chairs of the other export import banks in the UK and in Germany and in France and in Japan. And gradually over a period of time, I got them to agree to live in the same standards as we had, which I was pleased about. And also, I was very pleased that I could build a relationship with Caterpillar, who is a major exporter, obviously, of equipment that make helps to build dams, helps to build all sorts of important parts of projects around the world. And Caterpillar had been upset with us in Washington for not supporting the Three Gorges Dam in China. So there, I'm very delighted that I was able to build a relationship with the then-chairman, Jim Owens, uh, and to uh, my own pleasure, I persuaded him to join the board of the World Resources Institute, which I had by then, after I left the government, uh, joined the board. So it's a long-winded answer of telling you that. It was a, a long history of, in a way, educating me from from running an investment bank to running a government agency to the point where I could make a difference in the environmental area. But a lot of people helped along the way, including uh, the Caterpillar people.
4: Well, you know, one of the things I love about having conversations like the one we're having, Jim, is that I always learn things. I had never heard of pie throwing as an act of protest before. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm. I'm <laughs> I I think yes. that's in some ways I I think that's that has become my new favorite method of protest. Um, yes, it, 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 you, you have to. Be, when you're standing up there on the podium, at, you know, in the
3: private sector, investment banker, no one threw pies at anybody. We we tried to reason <laughs> to get people to, to do to do things, but this young man was in the back room and he did have a pie and he started to approach the podium and one of my assistants <laughs> stepped up and fortunately got caught and I I ducked out of the way luckily I was in very good shape then so I could duck and weave but it's not was not uncommon uh and it, and people felt so strongly about that uh I never thought that in the government I would be threatened with pies but uh, I, I, I would say Washington is a, is quite confrontational,
4: as we know. Hey, you have a book coming out, up and doing. Yes. What What is the the basic uh, uh, content of that book? So it, the title comes from the fact that when I was a young young boy going to
3: elementary school, I sometimes. Slept a little longer than my father thought that I should. He, because I had to get to school, he would come in and he would recite a poem, which is called "The Psalm of Life" by by Wordsworth. Uh, and it starts, "Let us then be up and doing, with a heart for any faith, still achieving, still pursuing. Learn to labor and to wait." So he would, he would, you know, when I was seven, eight, nine, and he would say, "Oh, up and doing, Jim, up <laughs> and doing." And so it stayed in my mind. So it is what i call very typical american optimistic position let's get on to the task let's solve the problem let's go to work let's do something productive so it always stayed in my mind and i would even when i was in the government i would often say to my colleagues let's get up and doing and they would look at me (laughs) say, listening down the crazy. but but that was to me symbol of let's get on let's get on with the american way of solving the problem and going to work and doing something good so that's the title of it the book starts out uh it's my life and i get into some trouble when i'm at school and i have some problems and i discuss some of the mistakes i made in life uh in in the book but it it gets into what i most want to talk about and that's the work I've been doing for the United States government in Egypt, and how do we ever build the World Resources Institute to the size it is today? So the two things that I wanted to talk about when I wrote the book was the growth of of the World Resources Institute and role well, its playing and this concept of uh, uh, of how do we help these poor countries in a way that's good for the United States? Well, and Jim, that's why I wrote.
4: Yes. Jim, I have to, uh, I have to take a short break here, but I really want to talk about the uh, climate accord, uh, uh, the Paris Climate Accord, and COP twenty-six, and some of these other things. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Certainly. All right, that'd be great. My guest is James Harmon, uh, considered to be a climate policy insider. We're going to let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well.
3: Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger, ti double gr That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner's
1: program on account of because he's
3: so bouncy.
5: Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmers market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildy, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
4: And welcome back, everybody, as we continue my conversation with Climate Policy Insider, James Harmon. Jim, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Well, it's
3: interesting. It's, you have a lot of support. The program is obviously attracting a lot of interest. Um,
4: well, one thing that's uh, it, it's, it's interesting you say that, because one of the issues that's attracting a lot of interest um, and and more and more each year is uh, climate change basically and and you've been working on it and and aware of it and and trying to set policy and and influence policy for for a long time um, Jim, why do you think people are? <laughs> pardon the way I'm putting this, but why are people warming to global warming?
3: Because it's starting to affect their lives. When, when I first got involved with it, the people who were interested in climate were usually people who focused on pollution, local pollution. So if, if the lake they had, the supply of water they had near their home <clears throat> was polluted and it was dangerous, uh, affected their lives it was very difficult 30 years ago to get people to think about climate as it impacts the world because they thought that's a long-term problem and why should they be worried about long-term problems they worried only about things that affected them locally now I think with the nature of storms as they are and with the likelihood that the sea level will rise two feet in, in the next few decades uh and where really we will have storms growing it will affect our lives everywhere <clears throat> so now people are really seeing it as what was expected maybe some years ago but it was very difficult to predict it uh, i always we have some of the same problems with with smoking and tobacco so i remember being in a taxi in africa and I would the driver was smoking and I would try to give him a little lecture that it's going to shorten his life expectancy. And he would say to me, Mr., uh, where I come from, I don't worry about living a long time. I worry about just making enough money for tomorrow and this week. So that was somewhat similar to people on climate in the United States. They didn't think about what's going to happen 30 or 40 years from now. Uh, but today, the future has become the present. Now we have these problems, and now we have to
4: do something about it. Jim, the president just got back from uh, COP26, and I have to admit, I've been scratching my head as I read news accounts. What is COP26?
3: It's it's a uh, U.N.-organized conference to deal with climate issues and it has been going on for a number of years. This is the 26th one. Fortunately, this year they decided that next year the conference will be held in Egypt, a country which I was spending a lot of time on, uh, and it's a very important decision that they made. But this year's conference, attended by close to 200 countries, uh, is very important that the Chinese... And the Americans have come to an agreement on how to deal with this very, very significant issue of global warming and, and what should be done about it. Now, we don't know the specifics of it, but the mere fact that we came to an agreement with our principal rival in the world, China, is, is quite significant. So, COP. What does the we, COP
4: stand for?
3: It's the countries of, uh, in, 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 the pro, in the process. The countries that are working on this, so the countries are invited. They never came up with a name of it years ago that was climate related. It was the countries involved in in the, the challenge that we face. Uh, and so, um, in every year, the number of countries and the participants have grown. This year was the largest by far. So, um, the World Resources Project probably had. 40 or 50 people there um, representing the, the work that we're doing and other non-governmental organizations sent significant people. But every country ha- had people there um, and the leadership of these countries came. So this is a very important conference. And it's, it's, it shows the concerns that the countries of the world have on this issue. Climate affects everybody. It affects everybody living in Africa, affects everybody living in the United States, affects people in Latin America, it affects people all over. So we have got to work together as countries to solve this problem, or we will have a disaster. And we've said, well, President Biden has set some goals that he, which are very reasonable, that, uh, that, that his commitment to reduce U.S. emissions by 50%, from the 2005 levels to 2030 and other countries are making important commitments themselves now we have to follow up uh and we have to think about how do we help one of the most important parts of this conference that has gotten some attention maybe not as much as it will i think in the future is that we in the united states and in china and the larger developed countries we have been we have been emitting carbon for many years and we have caused the problem of global warming the rich countries by by industrializing their economies we we are the cause of the problem the poorer countries in africa asia or latin america they have not had the industrial base so they have not caused the problem so now we want to set rules that everybody has to live with, it, and it's only natural that the poorer countries said, wait a minute, you in the United States and you in China, you caused this problem. Why should we have to live with it? You're telling us we can't use coal, we can't use certain wood burning, we can't do these things because it affects the world. You, You have to pay us something if you want us to do that because that's not fair. You polluted the world well
4: yeah how do how do we avoid um, i mean say we get the 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 big countries uh, you know the the influential countries the u s china russia uh, Great Britain, and so on to start making changes and reducing the the carbon footprints of those of those countries. There are still countries that are developing around the world. How do we avoid just shifting pollution? from the US and China to countries in Africa as they begin to industrialize and, and do manufacturing and so on?
3: So this is the, the subject that I am spending most of my time on, uh, more than anything else that I do, because it combines something that I, I was after I left the government. It's, it's very common in the United States government if you've done work in some area that even after you leave and you're going back to the private sector, uh, the next government can ask you to take an assignment. Um, And so I think that's a wonderful part of our government that people are involved in helping the country. So some uh, seven, six years after I left the the Clinton administration, I got a call um, then asking me if I would lead an effort uh, for the U.S. Congress to help the private sector to grow in Egypt, a country that was very important to us in the Middle East. One in four Arabs live in Egypt, uh, and Egypt is critical for that part of the world. And I took the assignment, um, and that's what I write about in the book, because I had no idea of the violence, nor did I have any idea about where they stood relative to Climate where I've been spending so much time. So enormous education in my life, at a late stage where I never expected, going back and forth to Cairo was an extraordinary experience. And that's the heart of the book I would write about, that and how it relates to the environment. But when I got to Egypt, I realized that um, we were given some 300 million by the Congress to invest in businesses in Egypt that would help their economy to grow and would do it in a in a constructive way uh in an environmentally constructive way but mostly to help the the economy to grow and i i found very capable egyptians egyptians did not want americans to come in and run their businesses and they didn't want to work for the state department or the usaid they wanted to run their own business so we used the model that was used in the united States we convinced the Egyptians to start what we call a private equity firm and we would pay them based upon how they did with our money. Uh, And that has been immensely successful, more successful than anyone in Washington expected. So this 300, 200 million of which we've invested now has a market value because these companies that we've invested in have gone public and which now has a market value of approximately $700 million. So U.S., not Jim Harmon, not my directors, U.S. taxpayer has actually made about four to $500 million in Egypt, helping the Egyptian private sector to grow, and it hasn't cost the United States anything the way we've done it. Now we're, we've started to make investments in in, in renewable energy, and in solar power and so forth, solving important problems on water and energy in in a country like egypt, so yes, Washington has realized that these this enterprise fund has a concept which by the way fortunately was started by the Republican Party in when uh, the bush won and picked up by Obama and Hillary Clinton in nineteen in two thousand and and 10 or 11, when they asked me to lead the Egyptian effort. So both parties believe that they are, have been responsible for this idea of an enterprise fund. We have been very successful in Egypt, making money for the United States and helping their private sector grow, creating jobs. We've created more than 15,000 jobs in Egypt, and we've done a number of other things important for climate in Egypt, so we've solved problems. Now, if we had done that in Central America, if we had created enterprise funds in Honduras, and El Salvador, and so forth, we would not have the migration problem that we have. And the Vice President realizes that, and they have been talking to me about an enterprise fund in Central America, which will create jobs in Central America, maybe in a larger scale than we talked about before. And we have, to, we have to consider enterprise funds all over the world and maybe convince other countries to do the same thing. That will be a way to, to build a job creation in the poorest parts of the world, and, and maybe this time we do it in a constructive way from a climate point of view. So a great opportunity now, uh, and that's what I, I start to write about in the book and what I'm working on now.
4: How are we on on the timeline, Jim? Because depending on who you read and and who you listen to over the last couple of decades, um, 2050 has been considered lights out. But you talked about President Biden's goals um, of reducing emissions by 2030 and so on. Um, Can can these intermediate steps... um, slow down or move back that that timeline yes i think we have no choice
3: if, by the way it's not ever going to be done in one day or one year well of course or one short period of time. this is really you have got to work at this every day and it will take we we i think we can meet the biden's goal of reducing our emissions by 50 percent by 2030 and i think we have a that's a, coming a, up pretty cramp.
4: fast, Jim.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's coming up as fast. It's right. But it's, there is, a, there is a, um, a lot of motivation by the younger generation, it, if you follow what took place in, in Scotland. The, the, the younger generation very desperately wants us to move forward on these issues. And, and I believe, in spite of the confrontation in Washington, which is a separate subject for another day, because I never saw confrontation in the private sector or even in most of my sporting activities over my life, playing all sorts of games. I never saw the kind of anger that exists in Washington. But in spite of that anger, there, there is support for reducing our carbon emissions now, and there is support for getting to, I think, Biden's goal, 2030. I think there's more support today than there has ever been before. So am I optimistic? I would say I'm cautiously optimistic that we can get there. We don't really have a choice. We need China to agree on the same things, which is challenging. And we need to put these enterprise funds in many, many countries and have help the private sector to grow in those countries with an environmental mission behind it. But it's all quite doable. Because there is definitely a motivation now in the younger, and and I might add, almost everybody that I talk to in Washington feels the same sense of urgency.
4: And is that globally as well? Are young people around the world uh, uh, adapting uh, yeah. this this uh, uh, desire it's, it's, to to it's, meet these goals?
3: Yes, it's the in fact, I'd say the younger generation in Scandinavia and Europe were a little ahead of the younger generation here in the United States. Uh, but the younger generation throughout the world uh, is the highest order of priorities uh, lies in in climate and how do we solve this problem? They don't want themselves or their children to be faced with the kind of crisis that will be faced unless we do something about it. So it's the most single most important issue that we all have to face and and i believe the fact that china and the united states could come to an agreement i've been negotiating with the chinese for years i I had difficulty coming to an agreement with them i did it when i was in the government and even later Um, but on this issue every country agrees and the younger populations in these countries are the are at the forefront of, of pushing their governments to do something that's the right thing to do here now. So we're going to get there. I, I, I really believe we're going to get there. It will take time. And during this period of time, we're going to see bigger storms and much more damage being done around the country and around the world. But we'll get there.
4: You know, uh, Jim, you work with this idea of enterprise funds and, uh, you know, helping Developing countries uh, build up their economy and and create jobs and steer them in the in the right direction at the same time. But what role does technology have? Are we seeing um, what we need to from uh, tech developers yes, and and I so see. on?
3: It's a very important question.
4: Um,
3: uh, it, it, people. It, in the Congress say to me, how come you've, done, you've made so much money and you've done so much in Egypt when in the 1990s, when we started enterprise funds, as I said under Bush one, we did 11 enterprise funds and we, we, broke, we broke even. We didn't get hurt terribly, but why, did you, why were you so successful in Egypt? And the answer is not Jim Harmon. The answer is because of technology and I'll explain that in a moment. And it's because of the talent of, of people in the developing world. They've gone to school in the United States. Or they've maybe worked in Wall Street. Or maybe they've worked for uh, one of the companies in the United States. But they learned enough in the last 25 years so that they can now invest and run these businesses. That's what happened in Egypt. Some very smart people have run funds we uh, we found them we created we guided them but the fact is they did it so the human talent in these developing countries has come a long way but technology is critical for example our very first investment was in a, a a digital payment service in a country like egypt and i must say all over the developing world if you wanted to pay your bills you you had to go down a certain day and wait online and because some maybe 10% of the population had a bank account 90% of the people in the frontier world do not have a bank account so if you just want to pay your bills not to mention borrow a little bit of money you had to go and wait online for hours in the day to get to some bank to basically pay the utility company or pay others so Along comes an intelligent Egyptian who copied, really, somewhat similar to PayPal in the United States. Now you can go into a kiosk, small little kiosk on the corner uh, in Egypt, and put a card in there. They started it by topping up your your telephone minutes. So if someone wanted to make a call years ago. You bought minutes on the telephone. You used a card to pay for it. Now you have a card. You go in. You put it into the kiosk in Egypt, and you can basically pay your bills and you'll be able to borrow a little bit of money. So this is what we call financial inclusiveness. Suddenly in in Egypt, 30 million people use this system now and this business has been in existence maybe six years, seven years since he started it, since our support was there. But in the not too distant future, half of Egypt 50 million out of more than 100 million in population will use this digital payment platform. It's only through technology that they could arrange these payment services. So that, of course, which enough. there are winners and losers in everything in technology. The winners were the developers of the technology and the developers of the businesses. The somewhat losers are the banks. The banks didn't adjust quick enough, and they haven't in the United States either, to technology that's taking place. Which is why technology has made a big difference here, but a, even a greater difference in a developing country like, like Egypt. But now all over Africa, all over Bangladesh, all over all of the frontier or emerging developing countries, they have payment services like this, which is just because of the technology that was developed. And that is true in a number of other areas. So I always explain that the three things that have changed the last 25 years since they started Enterprise Funds, one, technology is the biggest. Second, human capital is now, the people are, are experienced and can run businesses in the developing frontier world. Maybe part of it's because they went to school in the United States or they worked here for a while but when they go back but now the talent in these countries is up to the task of growing their private sector and the third is capital flows we have a lot of money going into these countries now to invest in these countries like our sources of capital coming in and the key thing to what we've done in egypt the congress authorized us to have 300 million we've invested almost 300 million now but we have it is stimulating we brought along other private sector investors in in over 600 million to invest in Egypt. So together we put 900, close to a billion dollars in Egypt from the private sector and less from the public sector. That's a huge difference from where we were 30 years ago. So future enterprise funds, Central America, Asia, all over the poorest parts of the world, we can bring the private sector in with us. So when people say, how are we going to have the money to do all
4: this? It's going to come from the private sector and a little bit from the government. Jim, I have to take another break here, and and I feel like we're just scratching the surface there. At least a couple more things I want to ask you about. Can you stick around for a few more minutes and we'll go into overtime a little bit? Of course, Tom. All right. Thank you. My guest is uh, James Harmon. He's chairman of the World Resources Institute. We're talking about... uh, climate change economic development how those two things uh, uh, work together and we'll talk uh, a little bit more with Jim after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break they are WFOV 92.1 LPFM in Flint if you're streaming us at Tom Sumner program we have some messages as well hi this is Joe by from the Blue
6: Lions and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program
2: or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810 767
6: 6490
0: The Hey,
4: this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue uh, in overtime, kind of, with... Uh, my uh, guest this hour, James Harmon, who's chairman of the World Resources Institute. Jim, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Um, it's my pleasure, Tom. Thank you. Um, Jim, we, we mentioned your book, which is uh, forthcoming. It's, uh, it's called Up and Doing, Two Presidents, Three Mistakes, and One Great Weekend, Touchpoints to a Better World. Um, when does the book uh come out it it comes out this month
3: yes the 23rd it, it, it'll be bu- viable f- through amazon and all bookstores as of the 23rd of this month uh it it uh we have very significant um pre-publication orders which is which is quite nice but yeah the th- book the book does, sorry tom the no go ahead. cover number of other things beside what we talked about it covers a bit of my own experience in, in the in supporting the motion picture industry and the music industry and and the, the work i've done that's to, to help to help starbucks at the earlier stages so it's a bit about my, my background with a number of things some of which you've covered on your program um some different industries but it does focus on what, we, what we've talked about already mostly
4: and I always you know I, I'm having such a, a great time talking with you and I feel like we've just scratched the surface uh, Jim I think I could sit down and talk with you for hours but the um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and what we've been talking about and in your work past present and future Jim do you have a website uh,
3: I don't have a website i think the book is the best way to learn and the book will be available as i said you can order it right now from any the bookstores and maybe in two weeks time it gives the real history about what i've done there is a website for the world resources institute wri a very good website uh but i i think that'll give it more focused on the environment but on my life It's the book is the best thing. I've not written a book before, and I have to say, Tom, it was not so easy because (laughs) if it wasn't for for COVID, I was uh, stuck, so to speak, in my home here in Connecticut, and I every day sat down and I wrote. I would never have had the time to do that. I'd have been traveling to Cairo or to London and so forth. I never would have taken the time, but that gave me the the time. Once I got into it, uh, I, I was determined to finish it but it's been literally two years, but it has everything I've done and a lot of advice to younger people and older people as well. There are opportunities to do things in the government uh, that are very interesting and most people don't realize if they're looking for things that they want to make a difference in, whether it's climate or whether it's economic development or whether it's any number of subjects. There are all sorts of opportunities. So I do go into that and I do advise people who feel they're stuck how they can get repotted in, in in another way so a little bit of it's my
4: advice and my history but it's the best training to do well jim it's been a real pleasure i hope you'll come back and we can talk some more after the book is out uh you know maybe maybe early next year I, it would be um it'd be fun to have you back i, I hope you'll come back and talk some more you no, know, I'd,
3: I'd be glad to, I failed to mention, uh, it just occurred to me that we do, we have a website for the Egyptian American Enterprise Fund. That's the enterprise fund that we're doing the work that I described in Egypt. So for what we call EAEF, the Egyptian American Enterprise Fund does have, does have a, a website, um, and of course the World Resources Institute has a significant website, uh, but uh, lots of... You'll see lots of things when you look at the website as to what we've done that I obviously haven't covered. I would I'd be delighted to come back anytime you need me to talk further about any of the things we've covered already. I think we have a very interesting program. So my congratulations to you, Tom, for building such a successful program.
4: Well, and and I want to um, give some kudos to you too, Jim, for accomplishing something during the pandemic. You'd be surprised the number of even best-selling authors that I've talked to that said you know they they wished they had used the time better than that it, it caught them so off guard they they were just like deer in the headlight you know it, it they really didn't accomplish anything so kudos to you for making good use of uh, of the quarantine and and the time we've mm-hmm. all had to spend closed
3: up one of the biggest things I always argue for is you can turn a a liability into an asset you can take a a disadvantaged moment this crisis with covid into an opportunity to do something different i believe very much that that's true if you're objective and you think about it what can i get done now there's a lot that you can get done now Uh, i mean i must say i miss more meetings in person and i'm i don't really believe the the younger generation can can thrive as well if they're just looking at their computer or the computer screen. It's, it's a good way to get through the period, but on the other hand, you've got to go back to relationships and you have to think about relationships.
4: Well, Jim, thanks so much for spending this time with me this morning and uh, keep up the good work. No, Tom, same to you. Keep up the good work. I, I'm, I've am i listened
3: to your program now the last few days and i really found some of the things you covered very interesting. So you have a new a new uh, fan in in myself so i look forward to following what you're doing and i'll be glad to come back whenever you want
4: great thanks jim take care thanks tom Bye-bye. you too that was james Harmon. Uh, he has a book coming out later this month it's called uh, up and doing two presidents three mistakes and one great weekend touch points to a better world but he is uh, chairman of the world resources institute um He's uh, also involved with uh, the uh, Egypt American uh, uh, Enterprise Fund. And we've talked about economic development and uh, climate change. And um, interesting guy. And I, I hope we'll have him uh, back soon to talk some more. In the meantime, uh, we're going to take a break. We've got lots more to talk about with regard to the climate on today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program.
6: Mega Luna was a friend of mine. I used to see her all the time as the sun would fade away. Luna came to play. Everybody said, You better watch out. Love will hurt you, yeah, there's no doubt Guess they just could not see The things she does for me She's always there on my darkest nights And all the others ain't got no time Make a lunar forever I will be And there if you should fall I give you my all Nights go by and there's no trace I think I'm never gonna see her face again She proves me wrong She's been here all along What was I thinking? to doubt, true love but far beyond the stars above I hope you can Forgive me Cause I cannot forget That you were there On my the darkest nights All the others Hadn't got no time Mega a forever I will be There if you should fall I give you my own And last lasts forever and So that's what they say But I as beg to differ with the words of yesterday Cause you and I will always be one place some may never see Megalunar There are my darkest nights. All the others ain't got no time. Make a lunar forever, I will need. There, if you should fall, I give you my. All the time as the sun would fade away, now Luna's here to stay. Old Fashioned Radio for a new generation
0: Pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Come on. Come on, get out of here.